We've come now to the very centre and the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's the most famous, most repeated passage of Scripture in the whole Bible. The Lord's Prayer. I can still remember the first time I prayed the Lord's Prayer like I meant it. I was in my mid-teens growing up in London. I wasn't a Christian yet. My parents were divorced and I had a stepdad. Well, a kind of stepdad. He lived with my mum, but they weren't married. His name was Terry and he ruled our house with fear. He was a big man and a violent alcoholic. I can remember the anxiety we all felt waiting for him to come home from the pub, wondering what kind of state he would be in. Well, one night he came home late and he and my mum got into the most awful row, shouting, swearing, screaming. I just lay in bed listening, my stomach in knots. And suddenly an almighty crash and I knew he'd thrown my mum to the ground. She was crying, he was cursing. I just lay in bed frozen, feeling so helpless, not knowing what to do. I looked up to the ceiling and I just cried out, if there is a God, please do something. And then I prayed the Lord's Prayer, because it was the only prayer I knew. In those days in state schools, the Lord's Prayer was repeated in school assembly every morning. And I'm sure for most of us, it was just kind of empty repetition. But for me that night, lying in bed, this was different. I was desperate. I needed someone to intervene, someone more powerful than me. I wasn't even a believer, but if there was a God in the universe, I needed him to act. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. It brought me some comfort and I eventually fell asleep. Well, it wasn't long after that 5am one morning, the police came and knocked down the front door. They handcuffed Terry and they took him away and we read about it in the newspapers the next day. A South London gang had been busted. They were charged with stealing and reselling luxury cars. It was the last I ever saw of him. I didn't immediately make the connection with my prayer, but five years later, when I became a Christian, I could look back and see how God had been with me all along. Are you in a situation right now where you need to see God intervene? Where you need his help, his provision, his deliverance? Let's take a look first at what Jesus says about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount and then we'll pray at the end for God to come. Jesus starts by saying this, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is saying the same thing as we saw in our last message about giving to the needy. And here he applies it to prayer showing us the difference between a true child of God and a religious hypocrite. And again, it has to do with the motivation of the heart. The hypocrites love to pray, he says, but unfortunately, it's not prayer they love. 
neither is it God, it's themselves. They want to be seen and admired by others. They're proud and self-serving. They have their reward, says Jesus, the fleeting praises of men. But those who pray to their heavenly Father behind closed doors, they are the ones who will be rewarded by him. Now, of course, that doesn't exclude spouses or friends praying together or uh, family prayers or the church gathering to pray, which is something the early church did frequently. Jesus is just addressing the heart motivation for why we pray. And then he adds this. He says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So having said our praying shouldn't be hypocritical, here he says, neither should it be mechanical like in my school assembly, you know, just empty repetition. Don't be like the Gentiles, he says. And here we can imagine pagans endlessly chanting their prayers to their lifeless gods so that they would be heard. You don't need to do that, says Jesus. Your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask him. Which doesn't mean we shouldn't persevere in prayer. It's just that God isn't so interested in the mechanics like uh, how long or how loudly we pray. It's not like we have to get his attention, right? He's our father. He cares about our needs, but he's also interested in our hearts. He wants our prayers to be real and sincere, like when I cried out to God to intervene. So having said that our prayers shouldn't be hypocritical or mechanical, Jesus then says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the last 2000 years, this has been called the Lord's Prayer, but perhaps a better name would be the Disciples Prayer because Jesus gave us this prayer as a pattern or a model for our praying. I don't think he intended it to be prayed just as it is, although there's certainly nothing wrong with that, as long as it's not mindless repetition and uh, that we're thinking about what we're praying. But ideally, as I heard it uh, said, it's meant to be like uh, the guiding handrails along which the disciple walks in forming their own prayers. So when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we then pray for some specific areas where we would like to see God's rule and reign established. And when we come to forgive us our debts, then we take time to confess those specific sins that we want to be forgiven for. Let's take a look now at the content of the prayer. It starts with our Father, and it's reminding us that we're part of a family, God's family. And so I think this confirms we're not meant to just pray on our own. There'll be times when the family gathers to pray to our Father in heaven. It also reminds us that we share the same Father as Jesus. When Jesus says he is our Father, he's saying he's my Father and yours, which is incredible when you think about Jesus being the eternal Son of God. It would certainly have been shocking to those who heard Jesus say this. Up until Jesus, no one had called God Father. God was too holy, too transcendent. The Jewish people didn't even dare speak his name. But when Jesus came on the scene, 
it was the only name he used. What's more, it's believed that he used the common Aramaic word that a child would use for their father, Abba, or Papa. No one before had ever spoken or prayed like Jesus. And here he is authorizing his disciples to speak to God in the same way. Our Father, he says. And of course, that's because, as we know from the rest of the New Testament, that God sent his son Jesus to redeem us so that we might be adopted as God's children, as it says in Galatians 4, where it goes on to say, And because we are his children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. It's this relationship with God as our Father in heaven, you know, a personal, loving, caring, powerful Father, that is the foundation for all our prayers. But he's not only our Father, he's also our King. So the next line is, hallowed be your name. May your name be hallowed, which means to be revered as holy. May his name be revered and made known. It's the first of six petitions that make up the prayer. The first three are directed towards God, where we make him our priority. Your name, your kingdom, your will. We put God first. Then the second three petitions have to do with our needs, our daily bread, our sins forgiven, our deliverance from evil. And that's the ideal pattern. God's glory first, man's well-being second. And in fact, we'll have a better perspective of our own needs once we've prayed for God's name, God's kingdom and God's will. But I'm going to reverse that order here because I want to comment first on God meeting our needs so I can end by focusing on God's kingdom, which I think is really at the very heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus encourages us to bring our needs to our Heavenly Father. And the three things that Jesus mentions really cover every aspect of our lives because they address our physical well-being, our spiritual well-being and our moral well-being. So first, our physical well-being. Jesus says to pray for our daily bread, which is basically everything we need for the preservation of life. You know, food, jobs, finance, health, uh, maybe good government, all the things that affect our physical well-being. We ask him for what we need each and every day. Then our spiritual well-being. Jesus says to pray that our debt or our sins might be forgiven as we also have forgiven our debtors. You know, unconfessed sin can really affect our relationship with God. And Jesus makes it very clear how important it is that we forgive others. Because after he gives us this model prayer, he then goes back to this point and repeats it. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's not that we earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others. Rather, it's evidence that our hearts are right before God, that we are truly repentant for our sin. When we understand our own need for God's mercy and forgiveness, then we will not hold other people's sin against them. You know, one of the main evidences of a repentant heart is a forgiving spirit, and that is essential for our spiritual well-being. And then the last of our needs is our moral well-being, for which we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. Because surely it's not God who leads us into temptation, it's the evil one. 
that we're asking him to deliver us from because he is the one who tempts us to sin. And as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And so that is essentially what we're praying for here. And as we pray for these three things, we're expressing our dependence upon God for every area of our lives. And as we bring those petitions to him, we can rest assured that he will answer our prayers. Not always in the way we might expect, but always for our good and our ultimate well-being. So can I ask you, if you're a child of God, do you take time on a regular basis to ask your Heavenly Father for what you need? Not when you're absolutely desperate, but day by day. As it says in the book of James, you have not because you ask not. So be encouraged to start depending on God more by acknowledging your need and asking for his provision. All right, now let's finish by looking at the first three petitions where our prayers should ideally start with our concern for God's name, God's kingdom and God's will. And really these requests are all asking the same thing. Asking for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done is an enlargement of hallowed be your name. It's as we seek for his name to be hallowed and made known that we pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. So it's a kind of threefold prayer. And it's not that God isn't already king over the whole earth. As it says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. But as Pennington says in his commentary, the reality in this broken and rebellious age is that while God is sovereign, his perfect peaceful righteousness has not yet consumed all of his creation. The reality is we are living in enemy-occupied territory, as reflected by the Lord's Prayer. It starts with God, the King of Heaven, and ends with the evil one, who Jesus called the Prince of this world. It's why we experience suffering and violence like I experienced growing up. And of course, many people experience far, far worse. And yet we can pray for God to change that as we ask him to reign on earth and for his perfect will to become reality. And as we pray that, uh, we can have great hope because the kingdom of heaven has already started its invasion. It started when Jesus came to earth. But it was his resurrection from the dead that was the start of a whole new order of things being established. As N.T. Wright said, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's Prayer is about. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I want to suggest three ways that we can pray and apply that prayer. First of all, in us. We pray for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done in us, in our own lives. It starts with us surrendering ourselves to him as king. Just before giving the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So praying for his kingdom to come starts with us repenting, which is a lifelong posture where we are continually denying self, are turning away from living for ourselves and turning to God to live for him. Which means living the Sermon on the Mount, saying, not my will, but your will be done. Have your way in me. It means living in obedience to his commands, in complete dependence upon him. Elizabeth Elliot tells a story that illustrates this. 
about the time when she stayed at the farmhouse of a shepherd in Wales. And she watched how he herded the sheep with the aid of his champion's collie called Mac. It was man and dog working as one. She said it was such a joy to watch the two of them were in the fullest sense in their glory with the shepherd whistling his commands and Mac circling to the right and then circling to the left, herding a stray sheep here, nipping at a stubborn one there, his eyes always glued to the sheep and his ears listening for his master's command. She says she saw a man who loved his dog and a dog whose trust in that man was absolute, whose obedience was instant and whose delight was to do the will of his master. She later commented, to experience the glory of God's will for us means absolute trust. It means the will to do his will, and it means joy. And that is so true. It's in his will that we find our greatest glory and joy. And we can trust him with our lives because it was Jesus who first said to the Father, not my will, but your will be done, as he prepared to go to the cross so that we could be rescued from Satan, sin and death. We owe him everything. So we start by asking for his kingdom to come in us. Then secondly, in the world, we can pray for his kingdom to come in this world. As theologian Karl Barth said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. I'm sure we can all think of a situation where we'd see disorder, brokenness, unbelief, injustice, sickness, suffering, and so on. Where do you want to see Christ reign? That's what we're asking for when we say your kingdom come. We're asking for him to come and rule and reign in that situation or in that person's life. You know, your kingdom come in my family, in my job, in my city, in my nation. We're asking for him to come and bring faith, healing, uh, restoration, peace, righteousness, justice, and so on. And never underestimate the power of your prayers. Even when you don't see immediate results, you can be sure that God is working through your prayers to establish his will on earth. Prayer has the power to change circumstances, to change other people, and even the course of history. That's why I love stories of revival where God has moved powerfully in a community or a nation because when you trace it back, so often you find there was someone praying for God's kingdom to come. But it's not just praying for it because it should then lead us to pray for his kingdom to come through us. Use me, Lord. Send me. And that might mean sharing our faith with our neighbours or going to serve the people of another nation. Uh, it might mean laying our hands on someone who is sick to see them healed, or caring for the elderly and the dying. Uh, it might mean meeting the needs of the poor and the needy, or working for justice and reform, as Christians have done throughout the ages. And I have to say how encouraged I am to see all of those things being done by members of our church. And I want to encourage you to keep on praying, because it really is making a difference. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it brings the life of heaven to our disordered world. So we pray for it to come in us first, then secondly in our world, and then the third way we can apply this prayer is by praying for the king himself to come. The only way 
that his kingdom or his rule and reign will finally and fully be established on earth is by the king himself coming, which Jesus has promised to do. Surely I am coming soon, he says in the last chapter of the Bible. It's in the book of Revelation that we see the future return of our king when he casts out the evil one restores all things, is when there'll be no more suffering, no more sickness, no more injustice, no more death, because heaven and earth will finally and forever be reunited, and God our Father will be in our midst. It's why at the very end of the Bible, we hear the cry of the church in response saying, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. Perhaps you need him to come right now, and intervene in your situation. Well, why don't we just pray as we close here? Pray with me now. Our Father in heaven, I pray for all those listening who are suffering and who have found themselves in uh, difficult situations. I pray for your kingdom to come to them right now. Lord, will you deliver them, heal them, restore them? Will you come and provide for those who are in need? Will you please intervene and bring about whatever needs to change? May your perfect will be done in each and every situation for the good of all those who are looking to you. Lord, we put our trust in you today and we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now here are some questions for group discussion. First, what did you hear that helped you the most? Secondly, what aspects of the Lord's Prayer do you find the most difficult to apply? Thirdly, name some specific ways in which our church is seeing God's kingdom come through our prayers and actions. And finally, pray for any situations where you need him to come now. Let your